0: it's great to be here um, with you all today here at Broadview and um, online with with RBC online as well. Um, I want to tell you a bit of a story that when I was 16, I think, 16, 17, I was doing Year 12 and I was doing art. And to be honest, I'd kind of put a lot lot of effort into the other subjects and I don't know whether or not, because I just thought art would be easy. um, And I don't know whether or not the response to that, um, in response to that, my dad decided to help me to become a bit more serious about it. But he decided to take me to Melbourne. And I'd never been on a plane before. And uh, we, we flew to Melbourne and we went to the, um, the art gallery and a bunch of different spaces there. And it was actually really great to have some one-on-one time with my dad. It was also great because that was 1997 and the, the Crows... or Sorry, 98, and the Crows were actually playing quite well. So it was good to be in Melbourne at the time. Um, but we got on the plane and I'd never been on a plane before... And I remember walking, and I knew what my number was with Dad, and I remember walking past these bigger seats with more room on the way in um, and thinking, what is that about? Okay, I was so excited to be on a plane, and then as we sat there, and as the plane flew, and then I saw they got drinks first and food first, and we were kind of three of us to a seat, and there were two of us to a seat. It's kind of like, oh, there could be more that I could have the kind of initial excitement of being on a plane for the first time started to to fade away a little bit as I saw what others could have. And then, um, you know, I've flown overseas a little bit um, and that's been a lovely blessing to be able to do. But I remember uh, Rachel and I were going to a friend's wedding in Ireland and we were so excited to go um, and, and to be with our friends who were getting married over there. And we got on the plane, and very quickly after takeoff, we realised, we were sitting in that middle section in economy, um, that the TVs weren't working for a whole row, and everyone else's were. And we were sitting there, and, um, you know, first word problems, let's be honest. But, you know, as the, as, the, as the plane took off, and as we were going, and the hours ticked by, and the people next to us are getting more and more restless, and we were kind of sitting there, um, they weren't able to figure out what the problem was. And I remember I called someone over and said, oh, look, surely there's something you can do. Surely. And they're like, oh, we can't get the TV. we've tried everything, we've reset the whole system, can't get it to work. I'm like, surely. And I'm not normally like this, but I was like, come on, surely there's something you can do. In the end, after a number of hours, they actually brought us forward and put us in business class for the rest of the, for the flight, which was amazing. And so I got to see kind of how the other half lived and it was lovely. You know, I got there and I was so excited to be able to use all the stuff, but I fell asleep in 15 minutes. Um, and it was amazing um, to be able to be in that. And I found myself kind of walking off the plane with a bit of a swagger, kind of I've sat in business class. I felt kind of a bit favoured. I felt a bit like I was kind of a cut above in some ways. Um, and that's what we're wanting to talk a little bit about today this idea that some. Can feel more favoured than others, and how counter that is to God's kingdom. And so today we are um, continuing our our series called Walk the Talk, journeying through um, the letter of James. Who is enjoying James? Are people enjoying going through James together? Elizabeth is, I'm um, seeing some nods. Um, it is great to go through James, but as Rachel said uh, in her first week, it is a little bit like a finely crafted punch in, in the gut uh, for us, because um, he speaks directly to the way we live. And so without any further ado, let's get straight to it. From chapter 2, verses 1 to 14, I'm reading from the NIV. It says, my brothers and sisters believers in our glor- glorious lord jesus christ we must not show favoritism suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in if you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say Here's a good seat for you but say to the poor man you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Is it Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves as we read this passage in James is, does favoritism exist in the church? Can favoritism exist in our church? Can it exist in any church? I think the answer here, and James is really clear on that, is absolutely it can. It can because it is actually so prevalent in the world around us. I remember there was a couple of times where I've experienced it, and you might look at me and go, well, look, you know, you're a handsome, white, young man, and you know, you'd, be, you'd be fine. You'd never have experienced favouritism. Um, but I remember a couple of times when I've experienced it. Um, there was a time when I went to a national, a national youth conference. And I'd never been before, and I was so excited. And there was over a 1,000 young people there. It was in this huge church. And um, during the meetings, God had moved mightily. The band sounded great, and the speakers were really engaging. But what was actually really cool was to see some of the decisions people were making and the lives that were being changed. And I really felt God's presence there, not because of the band and not because of the speakers, but because he had individually spoken to me. And I remember there was one meeting that was particularly incredible and so much so, I wanted to go and chat to someone, I wanted to be able to connect with someone and kind of process it a little bit more, um, but I couldn't find anyone. The meeting had really only just finished, and I, I couldn't find anyone, I couldn't even find my own my own youth pastor, um, and I was, as I looked and as I asked around, and then when I finally found people later, I actually found out it was because they were all hanging out um, in this special room together afterwards. This room had free food, it had free drink, they were... Um, hanging with all the speakers that had come from all around the world. They were hanging with the band that sounded so great. And all the other youth pastors were kind of there. Um, they actually called the room the VIP room, the very important person room. Um, and I never forgot that feeling. I never forgot the feeling of, of being so excited about what God was doing and feeling so included by God. And then in a brief moment feeling so excluded and feeling so separate after God, after all God had been doing, and it didn't sit right with me. And then a few years ago, Rach and I, uh, we visited a church, and we knew a lot of the people there, we had known them for a long time, um, and we'd done ministry with them, we'd done a whole bunch of stuff, um, and we were there just coming as visitors, it was a, we were having a week off, and we arrived deliberately a minute or two after it started, um, and being the kind of church that it was, it started right on time, Um, and everybody kind of wanted to sit in the front rows and kind of be close to all the different things going on. It was a very kind of charismatic place. And um, we wanted to be inconspicuous, so we deliberately arrived a little bit late, and we deliberately wanted to sit at the back um, and just be there. Um, But instead, as we walked in, one of the key leaders saw us, And they wouldn't let us sit at the back. We said, look, we want to come, we want to sit in the back. We don't, we just want to be here ourselves. But they wouldn't let us do it. And instead, they took us all the way down to the front row and placed us right in the middle. We were taken completely to the front. Worship had started. We'd been, we were there just a couple of minutes late. And being led to the front row and being led to the centre, we were next to all the leadership in the church. And um, that was their culture. And it was... To be honest, this is their way of honouring us. It was a way of actually, you know, bringing us in, in a way. Um, But I remember feeling so incredibly embarrassed as I walked up the front and as people looked at us and as rooms, like, seats were, like, emptied for us and all this sort of space was given to us. And we were given kind of the prime position in the front room. And then afterwards, we were given priority coffee. had coffee afterwards and everyone else had to line up Well, they came and gave us and we weren't there in any official capacity at all and we were given this priority coffee in front of everyone we could see everyone kind of looking at us wondering who were these people who were these these special people that were getting given all this treatment and as I said before we we appreciated we actually appreciated the welcome but we were fine to sit in the back we were fine we had each other and we knew that we'd get to talk to people afterwards. We knew that people would—some people there would know us—but this level of preference that we received didn't sit well. And maybe it's because of what I've what I'd experienced before, when I was the one who was excluded, and now I'm the one who's being pushed and almost forced to exclusion among other um, above other people. But favoritism isn't always as obvious as this, and. To be honest, often favouritism in any space, whether it's in the church or not, can be way more harmful than the, the ones that I've just mentioned. And so James is challenging each of us. He's challenging the audience of this letter because, because we are human, because we naturally show favouritism, because we live with sin and, and so we can show levels of favouritism to different people. And it is what we see in the world Around us i mean darwin kind of had that theory of the strong overcoming the weak it's something that the world has gotten used to and kind of thinks well that's just the way things are it's why some nations can be completely forgotten when they're in war and other nations seem to their celebrity gets a new soccer ball and it's on the front page of the paper and so i want us to ask ourselves do we hold favoritism too do we show favoritism and I think the best way to do this is to imagine something together. God has been incredibly good to us as a church family. He has has been great to see new faces come in. It's been great to see what he's been building here. And I would like us all just in this moment to close your eyes, if you will, with me, and to imagine this church filled with people. Imagine it completely filled. Imagine people have come in from everywhere and they're just hungry to know more about God and God continues to build what we've already seen. And I want you to think, what do these people look like? What colour is their skin? What age are they? Do they have kids or do they not have kids? Are they married? Are they not married? And to be really honest with yourself, when you instantly think of that picture, who is it? that you see not who you think you should see but who do you actually see when you imagine this space completely filled to the brim because I think that speaks to us you can open your eyes that speaks to us about the levels of favoritism that we can have the image that we can have in our mind will speak to us about those natural things that we preference those natural things that we put people that we put before others without even meaning to and so you can read in James's letter over and over again that he continually challenges the church in things just like this. And one of the things that he challenges the church most of all in is how they treat the rich and who the rich are in society. In society. You'll see that he continually speaks about lifting the poor and he continually speaks down the rich. It's a common theme throughout James. And he gets right to that point here again in this chapter. And he does so because James isn't talking to a neutral audience. I think sometimes when we read these letters, we forget that they were written to a context. He's writing to the church, the, the churches, and he had led them for twenty years. He knew he had seen what had happened in Acts two and in Acts four. He had seen when they'd shared everything. He had seen when um, everything was in a really great space. But he was writing to a church that was experiencing hardship. It's experiencing famine is experiencing poverty, is experiencing persecution. And so you can imagine it, really, it, it makes sense. You can imagine this scene where these church communities had been built on sharing everything they had, um, had come across times like the cities that they were in, which were hard. Money and material items, necessities, were maybe scarce. The church is being persecuted by those with wealth and by those in power. You can imagine in that context what might happen when wealthy people suddenly appear at the front door of any church gathering. Fathering the rich, then, in that kind of context really kind of make some sort of sense as a strategy. You think, um, if the rich come to our church gathering and they get treated especially well, like they get kind of treated every for, everywhere else, they'll feel comfortable, they'll want to stay, maybe they'll join our community, maybe they'll, they'll share in this incredible generosity that we have between each other. Maybe they'll influence their powerful friends and the persecution will stop. Maybe they'll share some of their stuff with us. But James's challenge to the audience of this letter and to us today is that this kind of thinking is the opposite to the way the community of Jesus is supposed to be. It's opposite to the way the kingdom works. Because in preferring some and not others they are, and honouring the rich, they were dishonouring the poor. That is honoring the humble, that is honoring the vulnerable, that is honoring the marginalized. The exact people Jesus says, alongside what James writes in this chapter, what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, that the kingdom is good news for. There is no partiality, there is no prejudice in God's kingdom. And so, the work of the Spirit in our life, he will talk directly to that prejudice in us. And it can be a hard work, but as we let that go and we make room, we are able to see what God is able to do and the diversity that God is able to bring in greater ways than we could possibly ever have imagined. This is something that the Apostle Paul says plainly in Romans 2 when he's speaking about it. He says, but glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favouritism. And he speaks of the oneness that God builds in Christ when he says there is no Jew or Greek or slave or free or male and female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. He's speaking to a church where the the free had power over the slave, male had power over the slave female Jews had thought that they were the only ones they were the favorites of God and suddenly you have this huge mixture of people that God is drawing to themselves and Paul is saying this is what God is doing by his spirit because there is no favoritism in God's love and so James introduces his chapter with these same words and I love the um He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. I love the way the message version says it when he says, my dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious christ oriented faith. So why does James go so hard and so early on this particular thing? Why is this so important? Because when we show favouritism, when we show prejudice, when we show partiality, It actually speaks to us strongly about whom we serve, what we think richness is. James says the richness of God isn't found in wealth, it's found in relationship with him. Don't you know that God, he says, has brought out his richness of faith on those who are actually poor by the world's eyes? That glory is found not in any of these things, the things that the world seeks glory in, but in Jesus alone. And how we speak should speak. How we live should speak of this glory. Favoritism, partiality, and preference and prejudice speaks actually more about our desire and where our heart is. It shows our own personal prejudice. It just shows our own desire for comfort, for safety, and for glory. Favoritism also speaks in to how we see others. And, and if we see others, maybe as something that we can get benefit from. The theologian N.T. Wright says it's through favoritism that we allow the world to leave its dirty smudge on us. Because it has no place in Jesus. But instead, James says this. He says, come instead to the royal law. The royal law of King Jesus, that is loving one another. It's what the author of Matthew says in chapter 22, and Mark in chapter 12, and Luke in chapter 10. They all record Jesus' as saying that the most important command alongside loving God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind is to love your neighbor as yourself. It's what John records in, in chapter 13 as a sign to the world that we belong to Jesus that we live out the command to love one another, to love enemy, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Our love shows the mercy of the loving God that we see in the cross. That mercy triumphs over judgment. That mercy triumphs over our judgment. That as Miriam said earlier on, that the name of Jesus has been given to us that everything else bows down to the name of Jesus because Jesus has done that work of grace, including us, in him. And nothing can speak greater than his name and what he did on the cross, what he wants to do in your life. And so we are all called to desire the opposite, in fact, of what favoritism speaks of, to place ourselves last instead of first to not show partiality. But if we are to be partial in any way, James really says, it's actually to lift the marginalised and the vulnerable and the oppressed, just as we see in the life of Jesus, to place ourselves beside those who no one else normally would. But to do this, we first have to acknowledge the prejudice that we all can have, the partiality that we can all show, and that desire for more that we can all have as well. That desire to put ourselves first. There are people that we can feel more comfortable around than others if we're really honest. There are things in this world that we desire. There is the more that we would like, the security that we are attracted to as human beings. And James recognises this as the human experience. He's not saying to somehow live away from this in terms of it won't happen to you. But what he is saying is to look at that in the light of what Jesus has done. He says to recognise it, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to do that hard work to turn away and instead to practice life by the law of love that Jesus calls us to. To live as people happy, to use my picture from earlier on, happy to sit in the economy class of life, or even worse, sit in the baggage compartment, sit on the floor, because our destination is God's kingdom and the renewal of all things. And we should desire it not as some sort of sacrifice, but because our hope, in fact, as our heart attitude shifts, is that by doing so we make others, we make room for others. We include, we point to the love of Jesus. We point towards the hope that we have in him. We point to his new way that doesn't seek power and glory the way the world does. James says that we should speak and to act as those who are judged by our love and our love lived out. In fact, Paul's pretty harsh on this. He says in 1 Corinthians 13 that without love, whether we want to be super spiritual or we want to be super sacrificial, all of that stuff is just a clanging gong. It's a clashing symbol. He says it gains us nothing. Without it, we can have the right words, we can say the right creeds, we can do the right things that we think is right, but without love, his love in our heart, none of that gains us anything. But James says in chapter 2 verse 12, this law of love, is actually the law that brings us freedom. It brings us freedom. It brings freedom to others. It declares the freedom of Jesus into the world. And it's through this love that we become ministers of a Christ-centred reconciliation to the broken world. And we speak of the reconciliation that he has brought to us. In Galatians, Paul writes this in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. I love that you were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command." Love your neighbour as yourself. And a little bit earlier he writes, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know what, I believe that when we show favouritism, when we realise that we hold a certain level of favouritism or prejudice, we're actually showing that inside of ourselves, somewhere, there is fear. And that fear is keeping us oppressed. It's keeping us bound to the broken systems of the world around us. Broken systems that don't speak of the love of God. They don't show his generous grace. They don't show his favour poured out for all. They don't show his continuing faithfulness. They don't speak of the, of the God who loves the world so much that even while we lived in rebellion and as his enemies, and we have all can do that. He came and through Jesus made it possible for us to be his friends. And more than that, he he gave us a belonging. And not just a belonging to a club, but a belonging to his family with him as our father. And we can know that belonging. We can know that fatherhood in our life. See, fear says that we need to seek glory. It says that we need to seek more, to have some sort of value to exclude others in order to be able to have what we want for ourselves, what we think we need. We want to stick with those who look like us, sound like us, smell like us, talk like us, wear the same kind of clothing as us, drive the same kind of cars as us, living in the same suburbs as us. This is what fear does. Fear says that we need to do those things because we we need to put our own security first. We need to put our own comfortable com- comfort first. and We need to Only give back to those who can give back in return. Fear is the opposite of generosity. Because fear wants to use others for our benefit. Because we feel like in that fear, we need to look out for ourselves. But in God's love, in knowing God's love, we have been called to freedom. We've been called to freedom because God is love. Because he's all the things I've mentioned earlier, he is faithful to us. And as John wrote in his first letter, and in 1 John chapter 4, we love because he first loved us. We show his love to the world because we first received that love ourselves, despite who we are, despite what we've done. And so James is calling us in this chapter to display this love outwardly to practice it, to put it into practice, to practice out the truth of God's love that we know, that we've experienced within us, to live for the glory of all that he is, not some sort of glory that we can attain for ourselves, not sort of some sort of glory that we see the world longs around us. I want to say today that, you know, that fear that can sit within us, can tell us that when we come to God, he has a prejudice. But I want to tell you today that you are loved just as you are. You are loved as you try to imperfectly live out his love within us. You are loved as you repent and then realize, oh no, I've kind of done it again, and repent again and again. In coming to God, he doesn't have a prejudice in coming to God, he doesn't seek benefit from us. You know, we can often think, I would love to live for God, but what would I have? What would I have to be able to give? What would I be able to do? We, in living for him, all the us is that we love him in return with all that we are with all that Mel is, with all that Simon is, with all that Graham is, with all that Valdine is, with all that Patricia is, with all that Martin is, that we that we love in the way that he has made us, but with all that we are in return. We don't have to be someone else. We don't have to have special abilities. We don't have to be able to play piano like Elizabeth and David. We don't have to be able to preach like Reuben. We don't have to be able to do sound and sing as beautifully as Mark. We don't have to do any of those things. We just have to be who he's made us to be and offer that to him. In fact, most of the people he has used, I'd probably even say all of the people in some ways that he has used, who had the greatest impact on history, have been incredibly flawed. They've been incredibly limited in their ability. And he has used them because he has no favorites. And so I need to ask today, have you experienced his love? Have you experienced his love? Do you need to experience it again? John says that God is love and his love is made complete in us as we live as he did. He says that there is no fear in this love, but the perfect love of God, when it enters into our life, it drives out fear. You know, when the early church experienced God's love, and this is what James would have been speaking about, he was there in that moment. When they experienced God's love by the power of the Spirit poured out at Pentecost, it became a community, a church of self giving love dedicated to God, dedicated to each other, generous, inviting, compassionate. All those things that Elizabeth said were, were, were um, synonyms of grace, They're full of the miraculous signs and wonders to God's love in their community. This is what God is wanting to do when his spirit is poured into our life to replace the fear that we have, the separation that we might feel, to knowing his love, to knowing how included we are, how included everyone is, how good his grace is for all. Something so good that we want to tell the world about it. So do you show favoritism in your life? I mean, Maybe when you were imagining before about what this church could look like, full of people, were there people that you now think, I didn't think of them before. I didn't think of people from that nation or I didn't think of people from that level of income. I didn't think of people from that place. And I want to ask yourself, where does that fear come from? Because I think we can all experience this. And James's call is clear. Bring it to the throne of grace together. And know the freedom that we have when we receive God's love. A love that he's poured into us. A love that he wants to pour out through us into others. Is there someone maybe that you, now that you think about it, you need to treat differently or think differently about? Someone that you maybe, you need to reach out to. James's letter is incredibly practical. It's not some theoretical exercise. It is practical. It's about the way we live maybe you can begin to pray for them. Maybe place yourself deliberately beside them. Introduce yourself to them. Make room for others unlike you. As we finish, I just want to... Um, there's an interesting thing about the letter of James, is that... Um, and I didn't get to hear Michael's sermon last week, so he may have actually mentioned this, but um, in English, um, we read it as the book of James, but it, its actual name is Jacob. The Hebrew name is Jacob. And so maybe we should be calling this the letter of Jacob. I think if you go to other Bibles, maybe German Bibles and things, it actually uses Jacob. It doesn't use James itself. Some say it's because um, they use the name James to honour the King James who patroned the King James Version Bible. Somehow it enabled his name to kind of be placed close to Jesus that you read of James this and James that. And if there is any truth to that, it's actually a beautiful irony that the book was changed to honour him in a way, a book that speaks so directly against prejudice, wealth, power, security and glory that a monarchy so desires and celebrates. It's a beautiful irony, but instead it points towards King Jesus, The king of glory, whose kingdom will know no end. A kingdom that invites all. It invites you to banquet with him. He describes this himself as a great banquet in Luke 14, where he says to his servants, go out to all the roads and the country lanes and compel them, the sick and the poor and the lame, to come in so that my house may be full. He says to his sheep, he describes in Matthew 25, that whatever you did for the least of these for the sick, for the poor, for those in prison, for those naked, whatever you did to support them, for the thirsty, for the hungry, you did for me. Now come and enter miking them together. He has no favorites. Let's pray.